Just so if you guys aren't familiar, if you didn't read the program, we have two writers, two actors, we have a psychologist. We have these, they know Daredevil and they know psychology. So that's what we're going to talk about. <laughs> so, first of all, let, let's talk about what do you guys, how, how do you guys, what do you think Daredevil's, how stable is, is Matt Murdock? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
genuinely sad because he already developed such a great relationship as friends and actors with Zoe, but also that character relationship is so deep and important. And that kind of carries over to, I think Vincent says he's like, when he describes Kingpin, this is a child and a monster all in one. That's exemplified pretty brutally in episode 12 when we find Wesley dead, and because I am the closest person to his proximity, and I am technically in charge of watching over Wesley, he turns to me and just pummels me into the ground because it's an emotional response. He does not know how to uh, channel his emotions any other way he posts that point. So it's interesting to see that happen too. Because how much you love it. I think it's also, I mean, wasn't talking about what it was like to work with Vincent in a scene as emotional as that. Wasn't he great? He just did everything. He was he was awe-inspiring to everyone. And one of the greatest you know, he wasn't, I wouldn't say necessarily like method per se, or walking around his fists all day, but he, you know, depending on what the scene required, like for instance in, what was it, the hell? In 13, when he has to get rid of Bob Gunton, Leland. That's another moment where, you know, Stephen, the night was directing that episode, and we're at the elevator shaft. You all remember that scene when, when Leland goes through the elevator? Uh, we are, you know, he's obviously not throwing the guy into the elevator, but Vincent's prep for that was like, whoa, it was unbelievable. He went in the corner and just, like over and over. I mean, I guess, what would you do as an actor if you're trying to emotionally channel throwing someone you kind of fairly trusted, at least financially to a point, down an elevator shaft? He's a trade. So Steven, we're standing there and we're looking and he's just in the corner revving up. And Steven's like, ah, ah, action, ah, action! Like whenever he's ready. It was really something to watch. And you had to wait because you knew you were going to get the quality of what you gave. Right, so, so Peter and uh, Tom, um, you know, when we look at like the dual identity of superheroes, as actors, you guys are kind of doing the same thing. You know, you, you have your, nor I'm, I'm assuming your normalizer different than the roles you portrayed. <laughs> so, so like, what, what's it like when you're on set and they say action? I mean, do you try to get into character before, like, like Vincent was doing? I mean, what's the process like for you guys, and how do you shut it off? Uh, I mean, I'm going to spite my hand with the moment when I had it was in the uh, makeup trailer, but just, uh, you know, minutes after that, we went right into the scene where we're introduced to the charge of the going into this, uh, the, uh, the warehouse and actually this risk. And then uh, maybe over to, uh, to Fisk, that's where I met him. But uh, a great example of a meeting acting, um, you know, I have moments like the Wilson Fisk or uh, like into the novel where I have to prep up for something that was uh, highly emotional. But in this case, um, Tommy reminded me so, you know, after I twist his arm and I release him, I walk up to my mark and I do my thing with, um, with Vincent. And they yell cut. They yell cut, and I come back and to my first mark where I come into that warehouse. And uh, he went down with him until they yell action again. He'd be laughing because I talk like this. You know, I'm a pretty verbal guy. I have a lot, a lot of things to say, a lot of opinions. So I can talk and I talk. And he was, you know, he, he reminded me that I was an actor. He was like, oh, dude, you're talking to me. I'm just playing. I can't believe it. I'm over there. You know, I don't have a moment 
not for you. You know, um, there, there are other moments where I have to, you know, get the heart beat racing, get my breathing up there, and I don't do it. This is not for your thing. But for the most part, you know, I, I could switch on and off. Uh, and in that case, certainly, he, he was laughing. He was like, what the hell? You're over there seeing like the sins of Japanese guy that you're you're just like some dude. So, you know, I, I think it's, I have to do, you know, two separate psyches. For me, it was easy to try and didn't talk that much. It was easy to <laughs> Uh, no, it was, you know, I, I created my own backstory. Francis is kind of like, if you read the comics, there's a ton of henchmen that appear throughout the run of Daredevil, especially volume one, you know, from Miller's run all the way through to the early 90s. You know, they've got a million names. Francis is, I think, kind of in the mouth of those, those, those henchmen, those bodyguards, if you will. So for me, you know, I read it as, as a fan growing up. I know that vibe, that scene. I know what how this runs his business and everything like that. So for me, it was very familiar. And I don't know, okay. So for me, it was just about, um, it was pretty quick, like he said, a kind of an on and off thing. So, the, you know, the chest puffs up a little bit, the head goes back, and there's your ex military guy, ready to go. <laughs> so, like, with Francis, like, what do you think is his motivation? Like, he knows he's not working for a nice guy. Oh, yeah. Um, See, I kind of had to create my own backstory with that. It was, for me, it was very simple. It seemed like a guy who was well-trained, can definitely handle firearms, you know, tough to a degree, but not compared to a fist, who's just this Hulk. Um, so for me, it was a guy who was wronged in the past, maybe betrayed by the military, has an edge, has a problem, a psychological problem in a way, because um, he is only about the goal. His goal was Wesley, and so Wesley was gone, and then he got, by default, sort of <laughs> like a promotion, and Fist is his top priority. He takes a beating, crushes his face, and the man shows up because he's like Uh My mentality is I now have to prove that I'll never let this happen again. So it's it's a dark place to be for that guy. He doesn't seem to mind. I, I did think it was interesting that uh, uh, Fist put Wesley to guard the nest after that, in the final episode, because okay, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's who is most important to Fisk at that point. And so obviously it shows some trust. You know, it's basically like I beat this guy within an inch of his life and he came back and was loyal, did not show any resentment or, or disloyalty, and so he's earned that right to protect the woman I love. That's a good great point. Yeah, so so what would be Francis's endgame? Like does he just is like what's his retirement plan? Is he just gonna <laughs> work with the kingpin and just hope that he's always gonna be his like his right hand man? And well, now that would get into spoilers now. <laughs> uh, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. I, I don't. I can't say that I planned it too far ahead from that. You know what I mean? Um, from what I understood, there was actually a point where Francis was being considered to just be put to rest right next to the club. The kingpin was just gonna beat him to death. Um, that was an idea. Peter, how would you describe Nobu's motivation? You know, he's a businessman, but 
He's got obviously his yeah, own. On the outside, uh, he's, he's portrayed kind of this kind of this certainly is the one suit that he wears all the time. But I think that he's driven, you know, perhaps uh, almost religiously like, like that, except that, uh, you know, I think the stakes may even be higher than
the bigger plans really are bigger plans. There's a reference to, well, he doesn't have a suit of iron or a magic hammer, but this does take place in a world where there are gods with magic hammers running around. Not in Hell's Kitchen, per se, but, you know, and that was the closest we came. And here's something I probably shouldn't say. Early in the writing process, there was some talk that Matt in episode 9 would be fighting a character named Karidi from the Frank Miller comics uh, that Nova was going to bring in Karidi and we all thought that was cool because three is this unstoppable undead assassin uh, from the hand, and then we realized someone who's never read the comics is going to be like, who's this new guy all of a sudden, you know? Uh, that would definitely be me. Yes, the only, <laughs> the, only, the only person in the writer's room who had not read the comics, and she was like, should I look at the comics? And they are all like, no, we need someone who is not ready. Yeah, so, so Hey, let, let's I was the only oh. woman in the room and the only non-comic book person. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was us, right? That would be, that'd be so useful. Thank you. 
where he would say, please, my brother, we're in the summer. And it was like two months later, he remembered where he was getting that from. He was quoting to himself when he wrote the Buffy comic. And there was a little character called Vanity Cat, which was like Hello Kitty, but like a vampire cat. And they were secretly, you know, demons that were supposed to infiltrate the children of the world. Uh, and one of them says, please, my brother, we're discovered in all of the Yes. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, there's a lot of, of, there's a lot of stuff in there. You know, some people might have recognized that the, um, the heroin package that I was doing, there was a symbol stamped on it. And the heroin was called Steel Serpent. Well, the symbol was Iron Fist's chest symbol, but without the wings, which is a uh, hallmark of one of the Iron Fist character's enemies, Steel Serpent. Um, you know, none so of this. Not, you know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so none of this is to say that you're going to be seeing any of this in the eventual Iron Fist show, because another thing, you know, you, there will be a show on that show, or right, or that show, and they'll do their own thing. But it's sort of like we wanted to set the table of stuff that people on other shows can use if they want to, and and Stephen was was big on that, and, and he really wanted, you know, to suggest that there's a line where Matt Galvez is talking to the Leland and. She said, I'm going home, he said, China, and she said, somewhere much further than that. You know, so stuff like that is all meant to sort of make people go, ooh, I want to know what that is. There you go. All right, well, let's, let's dive into Matt Murdock's set again. Uh, so, Andre, like, what, what does that do to his psyche, having the dual identities, you know, living a lie, lying to his friends, pretending to be, you know, having a, a disability? And I, I think what's great about his character in the show is that he's, um, it's very complex, right? He has, um, he's developing this notion of what it means to defend the city and, and the fact that he calls the city, that there's this ownership, there's this accountability, that this is his role, this is his purpose. And yet, he has to hide this from the people that he cares about, and he has to, you know, he struggles uh, with the priest around this idea that if I continue down this path, this is going to have to sacrifice some things. It also means that then I have to test myself along the lines of violence and brutality. Like, if I enter this world, what does that mean for, for my morality? What does that mean for the means that I have to take? So I, I think it's great that there's this, um, there's this duality with his psychology that the positive side is that he's He's developing this amazing superhero role, you know, this character, this identity, and yet he's having these very human struggles that a lot of us have, you know, like, um, what does this identity mean for me? How does it affect the people I care about? And then we, we start seeing that people are getting hurt and getting killed, right? So how does my, how does, how do I participate in that? Or how does my participation in influence that violence and brutality. So it might just be coming out of the commons in this brutal world. So I think all those like complex identity issues are really great and really relatable in a way. Do you do you think uh, like what what drives him to do this? You know, do you think there's like some unfulfilled approval from his father you know, losing his father at a young age, do you think you know that had any aspect on pushing him in that direction? And that's great. I mean, obviously, a lot of superheroes have an origin story. A whole lot of superheroes have trauma as part of that story. And what's great about his character is that he's, um, you know, it's not just about the initial accident that, that caused that blindness. There's a lot of development around the relationship with his father and losing his father. And um, in my world, we call that post traumatic growth the idea that after something really 
said in her big loss, you can um, actually get stronger. You can actually develop a strong uh, character after that. And I think that that's, uh, that's what he's doing. That's sort of what he's going from to, uh, to develop that. Um, and when it comes to like post-traumatic stress and whether he has PTSD, I, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know. I, I think that he's still struggling with the aftermath of everything that's happened. And when you live in such a brutal world, like Rowan Wilson is sort of leading the majority of the series, you sort of have to realize that a lot of people are experiencing trauma and adversity and loss. And this is just a, you know, a, a, that's kind of an eye-opener. But it's not just that, it's experiencing that. But well, one, one interesting thing um, is that, that just Drew started from the very first episode when he's doing that first confession and he says that, uh, that he was his grandmother said um, that Murak was having to tell him. And, and I think he's referring to this deep anger in him. But I remember having a conversation with Drew about this. I, I personally think Matt is very angry about having been blinded and losing his father. And I think and he wouldn't admit this, I think he's angry at his father uh, for leaving him, but you know, getting involved in the situation that got him killed. And he, I think in some ways he channels that by going out and beating up the sort of people who took his father from him. Uh, so that's, you know, that, that's just my person. And you know, the other thing with, with Daredevil, he's known as the man without fear, but Losing, you know, your father as at a young age, you know, not having any parents, wouldn't that kind of make him fear, you know, put death in front of him, like knowing I could die? And yet, we see him as Daredevil. He's out there and he has no fear whatsoever. You know, he doesn't. He's not concerned about his life. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think that's interesting because there's this um, reality. Like, I think he does know that he's completely at risk. That he has this amazing hyper um, sense. Um, superpower, right? So he has these abilities that other people don't have. But I don't think he thinks he's invincible. I think he thinks that he's as close to death as most people. And, um, and, and maybe it's this anger that you're referring to that there's this exhilaration around being that close to death. Does that make sense? Like, that actually pumps him up to really fight the fight. That's, that's kind of what keeps him going, is that he's able to uh, put all of that, those emotions and that feeling of revenge and those feelings of anger. Um, and, you know, he's got this superpower that he's able to utilize. But it's all, you know, kind of tunneled into that, that uh, going into that world of violence and brutality. The end game is, you know, obviously, psychologically, there are a lot of parallels to Daredevil and Batman. I think we all know that. Now, granted, that has power with Batman and a lot of money and tech, but there is that end game kind of psychology parallel Batman. There's got to be a fear that he's facing. He's inducing fear upon criminals by the way he looks, the way he approaches things. Saying, there you go. He's got horns. He's got a strange outfit. Like in the alleyways, he's attacking in that way. He's facing his own fears by inducing fear, things like that. Um, so I think you know, I, I'm sure you all can relate to Batman and Daredevil and compare a lot in that way. In that way specifically, and I think that's interesting. It's like Marvel's answer to Batman, but on that much higher level. Would be Frank Miller's run back in the day, and he pays away for what he eventually do on our and it all started in the run there. Aren't there a couple of other things that have drive Matt Murdock to just, you know, the part that it's sick, at least in the Frank Miller one, it comes in and changes, but it's kind of driven or kind of like you corral into a certain uh, lifestyle and uh, you know, idealism. 
And then, and then there's also the fact that, uh, you know, I think at one point in one of the episodes, he said it was my fault, you want to win for me. There's right. a huge guilt right now. Yeah. So it's almost like he's, he's systematically putting himself out in harm's way uh, because he perhaps could be suicidal. He feels a hell of a lot of guilt. Yeah. You know? That guilt that, that, that is a big deal, but I, and I think he wouldn't admit it, but there's the anger in there too. Why did he want to win because of me? Why did he just want to stay with me? You know, um, but you're, you're absolutely right. And, and what's the interesting thing with Sick uh, is that Sick channels his anger, grief, and everything into you know training and, and fighting and being able to function, and also controlling the, the senses that were overwhelming him. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's that line: uh, 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 "I was looking for a soldier who wanted a father," you know, and uh, that's why you know. And that's why he left. So he's also really angry at Stick for leaving him. Poor man. Everybody's just a man. Except Foggy. Except and what does he do to Foggy? He screws him over. And Foggy had every right to send that and that's sort of chastising him. It's funny because we talked about Foggy as the moral center of the show. Like he's the guy who's, he's what you, he's what it says on the box, okay? When you meet Foggy and you see Foggy, that is who he is. He's, he's, he, he, you know, there's a lot of illusions. Karen has some interesting stuff in fact, Foggy is the one who just lays it all out there and he's himself in the earth, and so in a lot of ways he's more moral center of the show. Now, now, what about, how does Matt Murdock come to terms with what he's doing? You know, because we can agree, you know, he's, he's a good guy. You know, he's, he's trying to get rid of all the evil, yet he's kind of a bully to the criminals. You know, he's, he's torturing them, he's inflicting trauma on them. But then at the end of the day, he's got to you know take off the mask and put on the suit and you know try to be you know a champion of justice. That's how people behave on the internet. You know, you have to hide on the internet and push people around, and say whatever you want, put that mask on. He's kind of afflicted for saying that. Darren, you're Charlie 
exemplify that physically. Yeah. And so much body language in between, like on one, I'm sure you remember when one guy goes down, he has literally one or two seconds to swing again. You know, it's just unbelievably gut wrenching for a while. I've never seen a fight scene that's gut wrenching emotionally like that. And that's why I kind of was like, because he got that, he got that kid on his it was so appealing. Um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Chris as well as Phil Silvera, the uh, coordinator, uh, who, uh, you know, I mean, and it's like Peter, you should talk about uh, Phil and his team, but they are so good. And just the fact that I remember when the show aired, what seemed to blow people away was, and, and this was, you know, everyone agreed it should be this, but those guys say it happened was, you know, they're not just hit people and they fall down. He's got to hit them two or three times and then hit them back and you see that it hurts. And he, Charlie's breathing heavy, or Chris Bruce's education, he's breathing heavy and staggering and you feel the fight seems felt real for people in a way that, you know, uh, it, it's not, you know, it's not in a, in a, uh, a 70s TV show bag and P.I. punching guy and doing that. It's very real. Yeah, Phil and uh, Chris and uh, Jim Jackson show. Funny thing was, uh, the great thing is that Philip went back, uh, this should be season two right now, he went back uh, to, uh, to the production after having finished Deadpool, which is Deadpool's out here. So uh, he just went for, uh, for Ryan Reynolds, and, and this guy is uh, just masterful. He uh, spent a lot of time with me, uh, you know, in, in my ninja bike seat, and there was kind of a lot of time in the chain. This is the kind of guy that, you know, who's a specialist in a with, with a chain, you know, kill kids who show you. Who, who in the world knows how to use that weapon? Three, four hundred years and every second guy did it to happen. I mean, literally, you're looking at so many different things he had to do, and he would just come up with that. So, like, you know, master. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, okay, we can kill somebody with this, and we're like, yeah, let's let's make sure we don't kill somebody, but make sure we don't think we're going to. So we had to do everything, but that was that was probably his most difficult. Was yeah, they've been, um, I think they've been rehearsing that for three, four months, and maybe a week and a half before we uh, shoot it in the room, six days in a row. He sent, uh, it was he sent over an automatic, it's uh, kind of a template for, uh, you know, it's a rehearsal, a shot rehearsal of what the fight is going to look like, so I could know what all the cast of Moonrise is going with. But um, I was in awe. He's not only a good stunt coordinator, he's a pretty good director as well. Because he framed the whole point and he cut it, and anyway, it was it was impeccable. It was beautiful. Him and uh, Bill and Chris Booster were performing at the choreographed movie once. And uh, when I went in there, I mean that scene is it's ninety percent them. It's not only like it comes out of their minds, but the, they you know I step in on the day and I would do my little uh, insert insert shots. But these guys have been working on this for months. You know how to contribute. Uh, but you know, two weeks before that, I was doing my previous uh, episode. These guys, they're they're working on every episode, you know, for months, uh, and, and, and kind of juggling, you know, multiple fight fight scenes in their heads. They're not, you know, they're not choreographed like a Britney Spears concert. They just take out every set. Uh, but you know, they're raising each other's faces with weapons and with fists, and uh, you know. I, I can't say enough about those guys. Just absolutely brilliant, brilliant the critics and performers, and they don't get enough credit. But um, I really, really should get four points tonight. These, these guys are amazing. Uh, I also got nominated for some interviews and they didn't get nominated. And I, like all, it was so funny because none of the different writers and producers were vision about us not 
Let's go back to uh, talking about Francis Nobu, and you know. So we mentioned fear before with with Daredevil, and where does fear come in with with their their characters? I mean, do they fear? Do they have any fear when they, they get into their, you know, like about to fight this mass vigilante you know, after getting creamed by Kingpin? So it's like, what what keeps them going? I think he goes to his mission to his wife that he had superiors that he had answers to. So I think. You know, that, that's a driving force. There's just no way he can fail. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I feel that Nobu um, took matters into his own hands and, and, and offered himself as the person to, to eliminate the obstacle of fist. Um, because uh, you know, he, he can't suffer against him as an alchemy. I guess that he figures he has the, uh, the 
it's his responsibility. Again, it's a very Japanese shield kind of a thing. You know, if you fail, somebody fails, the, the person, the supervisor fails. So he didn't want to send anybody else out there. And he took responsibility, you know, because, uh, again, it took a role you can fail. In this case, his, his head holds. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, he didn't give him a good choice. guy Wilson Fisk and then you know little by little she finds out more and more what he's about and then you know she's right there and Francis that goes back to loyalty and he's the only one who can basically ensure the fact and he's on the phone he's like you wait in the helicopter and we're off it's gone that's my new mission that's the soldier that's my new mission that's my new goal and the only thing that matters now is getting out of the country keeping her safe until we figure out the next uh, plan of attack you know what I mean the next stage I mean, we, we talked about, he, Vanessa was one of the interesting characters because in the comic she was introduced in a Spider-Man comic and she was already the Kingpin's wife. So her last name, she didn't have a last name before the show, maybe name. She had, her last name was Fix, always in the comics. Um, so there was some backstory there that, that we were able to, you know, we didn't fill it in per se, but talk about it and, and speculate. And there's obviously something in her background that made her, you know, get to know Fix. And you know, she was more upset by him lying to or deceiving her, being less than honest with her, than she was about the fact that in his business they would kill people. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that to me is, is interesting. What do you think? Well, yeah, it was very important to us with all of these characters, but we particularly had these discussions with the female characters that we wanted to do interesting stuff and we wanted to explore interesting things. We didn't want um, her to just be this wise. We wanted to start in a different place and see that she made choices and she she decided that that was the direction that she was going to go in. And that and a lot of people said, they're like, wow, they had like, the best relationship <laughs> in the show because she, you know, she found out who he was and she accepted him for who she was and who he was. 
and she loved them. And that was something that was very important to us from the very beginning um, with her characters, but with all of the characters. Yeah. Uh, we had a little, little bit of more trouble um, with Claire's character just simply because we had Rosario for the last time. So we, uh, we didn't have her for as you know, as, 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 as we did other people. So it was a little bit uh, more of a challenge to try to give her character more depth. And she was supposed to be kind of one of the moral centers of the show as well. Um, but but just, just because of the time factor. Right. And I mean, she was terrific and she gave so much just by her presence. But had we, her schedule, of course, you know, we only had her for. Uh, we got her back for episode 11, but it was front loaded with the episodes we were able to have her for. And we, were only, we weren't really able to get into the background. Um, but I think you know, her, her presence did make her that, that moral center. Yes, really she was she got who that character was supposed to be from the second she was put on the, yeah. on the, the set. I mean, she's one of the, I think, one of the best actors in the show. Certainly better than, oh, you're right. <laughs> 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 Interesting getting to watch with Vincent and Ayala on set, too, because I mean, my, my entire existence was basically with them, was with Toby, Ayala, and, and Vincent. Uh, was that Vincent, like I said, he wasn't necessarily method offset or off camera, I should say, but um, he was very gentlemanly to her in the sense like, uh, and I think he's probably he's a nice guy anyway, but just, just hanging out, he's really nice guy, but he was extra attentive to her, which I think helps translate that relationship a little bit easier as soon as you say action. So when she was sitting there, she's cold, you know, and he's like, okay. Vincent knew that. And so 
whatever the situation was, like we were, we couldn't get something done, uh, in, and I can't remember what it was, but in a gallery shape. And so we kept having to do stuff over and over again. And everybody was just sort of worn out. So we're, we're also doing these big, huge um, action scenes, and so everybody's kind of tired. And he immediately pulled all the actors together, and anybody that wasn't, you know, setting stuff up and sort of telling stories about, you know, this particular movie that you did, or this, whatever. And it was just to sort of, you know, like, keep the morale. Just keep the morale of, you know, of everyone that was there, uh, and also to make them feel like, you know, like they were a part of something, and that, um, uh, that this was, you know, like, if this is what we were doing was, was not just sitting around waiting for whatever, for the scene to start or whatever. It, it was something, you know, important and fun. And, and he was just great. Whatever it called for, that's what he did. He, My favorite Vincent moment on set, actually, is in perfect relation to what you just said. Uh, episode 11, where we're rushing Vanessa into the hospital. Uh, she had particular trouble with the foaming of the mouth uh, when her mouth all foamed up. And for some reason, she laid back. It was, it was getting, you know, the time crunch. We had to get it done and all that stuff. There was a lot of that happening. It was a little bit tense. And she was struggling with the phone. And uh, Vincent just out of nowhere goes, No, listen, guys, we're going to get it. It's fine. Lay it back and we'll just try. She's, she's Superman's mom. She can handle this. And everybody was like, ah, because obviously she felt over. It was just so funny. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It's fine. It all worked out. And I think when it comes to Vanessa's uh, role here, she's, it's so, she's so important because she's the one who allows us to see the compassion that this has. And he is, he, and it's genuine, right? That he is um, so loving and so heartfelt and compassionate that he has, you know that he has this sense of connection to humanity and he has this sense of empathy towards others. And yet he also has this potential for this brutality. And he's murderous and like no one else is for it. So it's it's so interesting and dynamic. And this incredibly intelligent, you know, sort of independent powerful woman is the one who brings that out of him. And I think that dynamic is really important for that show. It it was very important to Drew from the very beginning, um, that we believe that Wilson Fest really we see that he really believes that what he's doing is the best thing and so we for the city. And so and if we really believe that there's a part of him that is compassionate and uh, clearly super smart and that he's not just, you know, like a garden variety sociopath. You know, that <laughs> that he, that we wanted it was very important that everybody we wanted really all of these characters for people to see that there were other sides to them. That they were not just, you know, um, one-dimensional, and so there, those questions were always asked, like how can, how can we see the, that those aspects of these characters? And so she became a very pivotal part of the show because that is how we saw most of his um, compassion and understanding. And then, and then it also she became so interesting because. She made those choices based on her love for him and her, you know, understanding of him, of him to, to accept him for who he was and to be in that situation. So she was she was really significant to the psychology of 
the you know the other side of Daredevil. So, so you know you could see that they were like a team in a in a way, and that they weren't just one dimensional. They weren't just you know the villains, the traditional villains. Jim and I were doing another play Stephen told us that one of his first conversations with this and they were talking about him possibly taking a role with this. Vincent said, you know, yeah, so I, I haven't really read the comics since like the 60s. My recollection of painting is he had a painting that controls people's minds. Are you guys going to do that? And, 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 and uh, Steve was like, no, we're not doing that. And here's some things that you should read. And, and Vincent read all this stuff. And actually, when we were shooting episode nine, um, a couple of uh, artists, uh, writer artists, David Mack and uh, Wilson Cabbage, who have done some very influential their comics came to set, and uh, and um, they, they, they were so. Bill Skerich is, is a huge, especially a huge fan of Vincent, and, and he was saying Vincent was as excited to meet Bill because he said uh, "Love and War," which is Drew Goddard's favorite Daredevil story. It's a graphic novel. It's actually a lot about Vanessa and, and Fisk. Um, he said "Love and War." I have a picture from that that I look at before I go on set to play Fisk every day, and uh, so it was, you know. What I was one of the things that made me very happy is the level of, of, of mutual respect between, you know, the, the, the comic book, the people who made the comics and someone, you know, the people who made the show, I think, helped a lot, helped it become what it was. Now, does Vanessa just embrace everything, you know, the good and the bad of Wilson? You know, is she trying to change him, maybe? Is she... Enjoying the power that he has, you know. There's some degree of Vanessa where she's like, I don't need to know the details of the business, um, but I don't think that that's a. I want to be. I, I don't think that's not even pay. I think it's more like I understand that you may have to. I think it, in a way, it's her saying, I'm going to love you no matter what. Uh, and you know, I think that's that's sweet, but also disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> now, if, if we look at Wilson growing up, I mean. What, what can we say about his home environment and you know, what drove him to you know, killing his father? Well, it's probably had a good taste in me, I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, that was, um, and, uh... I uh, Child and monster. He even says, 
I believe in a certain some point in one of the episodes I wasn't just protecting her. Right. Or what that was a disturbing line in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I saw that I was like, whoa. Like, there was this strange unemotional like a disconnect to his mom in such jeopardy right then. So that blew me away. And I was like, whoa, what the hell was that? I mean, it, it involved the mom, but not wholly. I was like, well, well I think he was acknowledging that he wasn't protecting his mom, but he also wanted to kill his dad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting that, I think about two things. One is that he employed almost the same violence and mentality that his father taught him. You know, what do you do when you are helpless? What do you do uh, when you feel like you need to lash out or you feel like you need to protect yourself? So, in a way, it's almost like his father taught him how to eventually kill him. Kick him again, um, kick that right, ball. Right, that whole encouragement of, um, of, of violence uh, to the point of you know, no return, of where you go completely mad. Um, and then it's interesting that you know, later on when you think about uh, the city and how uh, everything is owned by him, or everything is run by him essentially, and talk about that feeling like he had to sort of redefine justice. When you're in a place where you're helpless, where the normal sort of human way of finding justice, so the, the ways in which we usually should find help and justice don't work. You kind of have to take things in your own hands. And he was the first to do it, you know, Wilson was the first to do it as a child. So it's, it's kind of an interesting way that that was shown up. And then, okay, let, let's talk about the, the idea of a vigilante, you know, being a vigilante. Do you think this is the the right path? I mean, because basically, Daredevil is setting up the criminal element. I mean, for some, there could be that 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 thrill, you know, seeing what they can get away with, knowing that there's, you know, unless they're, I don't, know, I don't think people are going to seek out an encounter with him. But you know, I would imagine at some level, maybe there's like like, oh, I'm going to do this crime, and I got away with it. You know, the the, the mass vigilante didn't get me. So I mean, is is, is he? Kind of driving because you know they always say the the superheroes bring in the supervillains. So I, I don't know. Well, it's interesting that that also goes into the whole idea of, of the costume, the Daredevil costume, and it was a very specific decision not to have it appear until the very last episode. Partly because this was the story of Matt becoming Daredevil and Wilson becoming Kingpin, but also because we talk about. I mean, he, he literally lives in a neighborhood that has been devastated by a superhero battle. Avengers empowering battle in, in Avengers. Um, and I think if you talk to Matt, definitely in season one, and called him a superhero, he would have been offended. Because his idea is that's those guys who, who wrecked my neighborhood. That's not me. I'm, I'm out there protecting regular people from actual problems. Not that the alien invasion was not an actual problem, but his whole idea is Tony Stark is a billionaire who probably doesn't know what it's like to have a father to be raped by a single father who needs to throw fights to a gangster to make a living, you know. And that's why I, I don't think Tony Stark does know that. <laughs> um, so it, it, it was very, um, you know, the whole idea of the master vigilante, I, I don't think Daredevil would have thought of it. Now, it is interesting, now that he's put on the costume, you know, if all of a sudden still man walking around or, or, you know, stuff like that, specifically to challenge him, then I think that's something for Matt to take up. But I think at least in season one, yeah, and the other fascinating thing is, you know, as a lawyer, you know, he's he's trying to uphold the law and everything. But with when he puts on the costume and he he's beating down these criminals, 
he's not really giving them another choice. You know, he's just leaving them, you know, beaten, and there's really no follow-up with, you know, putting them on trial. So it's like, how does he balance those two career paths? If he could have put them on trial, I think he would have done so. It meant Murdoch, I think he's mostly beating up guys who, uh, you know, for whatever reason, that's the only way that he feels to deal with them. Um, but it's interesting, when we first started the show, we thought that there were probably a lot more forward teams than there ended up being, and we kept talking about putting them in, and they never quite did, and I, I, I came to the realization, and Drew and I also worked for a long RSC, I came to the realization that if, if Sam Waterston put on a costume and went out and beat people up, they probably would be through a courtroom scene as long as they Because that's just kind of who we want. You guys have lost half with the because Yeah. It was about 9-11, it was about 9-11, but they had done it before 9-11 happened, but 
Is that gonna? You think that's gonna change his his mindset when he's going out there protecting the city? Uh, I think it actually is really great. Uh, I mean, let's, let's face it. He's not an individual as he's He has more protection now. Like, let's not blur the line between like, oh, he's not. I mean, I think he has to. We talked about this earlier. If he has to face the fact now, he's probably going to be mixing it up. Likely he's going to be mixing it up with a little bit more ethereal character and high tech. Superhero, that title, superhero. So he's gonna have to, I think, ask himself that question a lot deeper. Like, is he, is he now in that mix because of the grandiose? I mean, it's not that great. You know, he's in a costume with horns and all that jazz. <laughs> so he is. Is he or is he not? I think he's gonna be facing that a lot. He, he's got to. Uh, I mean, he's more of a symbol now. There were already people. It was interesting because one of the, the things that we came up with early on was him being branded the devil's politician by. Fit, you know, people who were in Fisk's pocket. Fisk frames him for the, the explosion. And so, in a way, the costume and, and the identity of Daredevil, even though he didn't take the name, is him take, trying to take back some degree of, of that of his identity. But he's probably going to find that, you know, now that you're the symbol, everyone's going to have an opinion of you. You know, some people are going to think you're a good guy, some people are going to think you're a bad guy. And it'll just be interesting because, uh, you know, we, I personally feel he wasn't interested in any of that, but he's going to have to deal with it one way or another. Okay. Well, thank you all for coming. Also, I want to mention that Andrea has a website, Under Mask Online. She talks a lot of Batman psychology and other just superhero stuff, so she's got some cards up here if you want to check that out. Did everybody see her shoes? Yeah, they're pretty made. Everybody else, I'm just going to talk to all right, and thanks to uh, Tommy, Peter, Ruth, and Christos. You guys are all doing an amazing job. And sorry, Peter, about what happened. So. Um, slow <laughs> all right, thank you all for coming. Thank you, guys. So, so my, question my question is, is could it be? We don't know. And I would like to ask you which comic book does affect you most emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. That's the question. Don't shake your head. I love Alan Davis. This is a John Byrne issue. I love Alan Davis. I, I, I wasn't a fan of this. That's the question. You can't blame the immediate creative team. I give this a two. <laughs>